0: In a world where Mad Lab Theater...
1: What are you doing?
0: Making the
2: Mad Lab ad for Cinema Wheeler Tay. Oh, here's my other one. Susan thought it was just another day, and then she met Mad Lab.
1: Why don't you just say that Mad Lab is the New Works Theater in downtown Columbus? Featuring hilarious comedies, powerful dramas, improv with FFN, the annual Young Writers Festival, and the longest-running shorts festival in central Ohio, Theater Roulette.
2: That sounds pretty awesome, especially when I do it over the Star Wars theme.
3: Star Wars is always a good choice.
2: Mad Lab, the original.
1: For more information, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter,
3: or visit us at madlab.net.
2: This is the studio. A great, great song. Personal
1: favorite. Welcome back to another episode of Cinema Wheeler Tay. It's uh, Sean, Tony, and Scott, as usual. Hello. Hello. Okay. And we're joined by uh, a returning guest, one of our favorites. You know, we say that about every guest, but this time we mean it. <laughs> this time we're sincere. Uh, the one and only, uh, from hashtag comedy, Mr. Paul Stelzer.
3: Thank
2: you thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Sean, Scott, and Tony, for having me back. It was uh, wonderful when we <laughs> met to do Silence and the Lambs, and today we are doing another pretty gory, pretty graphic movie, so I don't want people who are listening to this to get the idea that I have some kind of uh, sick bloodlust, but uh, it just happens to be that, uh, and I'm not like a horror movie genre guy, and these are... Very loosely horror movies, if you want to even call them that silence of the Lambs and the movie we're discussing today, but um something about just the combination of the psychological aspects and the humor that's woven into both of those movies mm. Silence of the Lambs and I'll let you introduce today 's film mm. it really appeals to me right and obviously we're talking about Friday the
1: thirteenth part six no, no, <laughs> no, no just uh but no we're talking about uh the two thousand American as according to Wikipedia black comedy horror film yes. uh, American, right. yeah yeah American psycho yeah that's actually a pretty yeah. accurate uh title I'd say it's more of a thriller than a horror but film we're gonna I get say. specific right yeah. and, and
2: that's kind of what we said about Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. too like, I don't really I saw it classified online as a horror film, but it was preceded by like you said black comedy horror film and I say I think of it like Silence of the Lambs, more of a, a suspense or psychological thriller, you know, with with yeah. some definitely horrific, graphic scenes on top. Yeah, it, it's funny because when you
1: uh, we were talking about doing this movie with you, it dawned on me that same trend you were mentioning It's like, wow, Paul is picking a lot of serial killer movies, <laughs> yeah. and he's one of the nicest people I know and one of the most well adjusted. <laughs> and yet, here, here's a trend here. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think uh, this movie in particular, I think is. Is kind of brilliant, I, and actually, I probably respond mostly to the satirical comedic elements in it more than anything else. Like, I think the thriller elements are well done. I'm not going to discard that, and I think it's necessary to tell the story. But it's really the satire that appeals to me. It just just because it, it it's basically tackling 80s yuppie America, you know, right, it's like right. um, the materialism of the yeah. 80s when we say materialism in the 80s, it's really materialism in America, period, at any level, but in that particular era, it seemed like, like especially the late 80s, yeah, Manhattan and Wall Street was just you know, oozing with guys like this. You know, right, like, right. Guys like Patrick Bateman. Uh, they may not have been literally killing people and we don't even know if Patrick Bateman's literally killing people either, but, I mean,
2: the superficiality of his character is something that was probably prevalent then. Right, right. And that's, and that's what I also embrace so much about this, this film. I mean, I call it the quintessential satire on 80s greed, greed and materialism and obsession with style and image over substance and, and this kind of self-indulgence and excess that obviously is still out there today but I think really came to a head at least in pop culture, when it came to the 1980s in terms of what was happening in real life on Wall Street and what ultimately was depicted in uh, in media, whether it be Wall Street, the actual movie that was a more serious look at insider trading, but also shone a light on the, um, the excesses of Wall Street and the, the dishonesty and illegality of some of the trading that was going on. That actually was made in 87 the same year, or was released in 87 the same year where... This movie is set, so it was you know mm-hmm. made in 2000 or released in 2000, but it's set in 1987. So it's um it, it really does kind of capture that 80s era of greed is good and Gordon Gecko. Oh, it yeah. does.
0: And I think Patrick, Patrick Bateman says it best himself when he says, "I want to fit in." Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean that just sets the whole tone for the movie in terms of where his psychological status is. Um, and I think with a lot of a lot of other folks as well during that time, you know, it was all about fitting in, um, trying to make a name for yourself and to stand out in a way um, that you got attention. But to really, at the end of the day, just have that that form of self acceptance, but also your acceptance from your peers. You know, uh, like like Paul had said, more so substance um, uh,
2: style, style over Substance, over
0: substance yeah.
2: And and that is that, that whole notion of fitting in and that that is mm-hmm. his response to uh, Evelyn, Reese Witherspoon's mm-hmm. character, his fiance, pro- mm-hmm. prodding him to leave Pierce and Pierce, the mergers and acquisitions company he works for on Wall Street, and and how many times have you ever thought about leaving a job and, and have you has anybody here or anyone that you know decided to to stay in a miserable job because they wanted to fit in. But it it really does speak to this yeah. movie in terms of how they're all empty suits. They're all trying to fit in, but they're also all trying to kind of get ahead and one-up each other with the business cards and the suits and the hair and, and, because, and the, yeah. the reservations yeah. at the fancy restaurants. And so, yeah, it's about fitting in, but it's also about, you know, sticking it to your fellow empty suit these kind of nameless wall street executive young Yardim but the Fassel. interesting
0: thing too is uh, and i actually said this when i was watching it earlier is they all look exactly alike which is probably why there are so many different identity crises in the movie where everybody's always referring to patrick bateman as somebody else right. because yeah. they all look alike <laughs> they do. you know it's it, and, and and again it's about that fitting in there's no real sense of identity um, with probably any of those folks, even with the women, they're all sort of, you know, these like bubbly blondes. and the right, ones high, right. You know, they're, they're either on pills or prescriptions and they're, they're alcoholics or whatever the case is. Or, you know, Evelyn um, Reese Witherspoon is just so oblivious to, to what's going on. It's like she's living in her own little bubble.
2: Right, which right. Which is exactly
0: what, all of, mm-hmm. what they were all doing. They were all living in their own little bubble, uh, just very self-absorbed.
1: it it was uh, I actually remember when this movie was first released there was some controversy about it maybe because of the violence Um, and I always refer to Roger Ebert's reviews but I know he only gave it three stars he loved Bale's performance but I think he had some issues with the movie but he Mm -hmm. still liked it and recommended it but I was at an age in college where I'm like well if it only got three stars from Roger Ebert I probably won't check it out it has to be four stars (laughs) it is it was a very pretentious move (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, but over that's time,
0: that's so Paul Allen.
1: <laughs> that is a very Paul yeah. Allen move, and I should be slaughtered, you know. Um, but uh, I grew out of that very quickly not to pretension but I I accepted oh I psycho. could you, yeah. yeah I'm just
0: kidding um <laughs> am
1: I no 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 who knows it's just like Patrick Hayman it's a
3: mystery we're trying to figure me out
0: so. I like to say that I'm a playful yet mysterious little bitch
3: yes Sean gets upset when he walks in the apartment and overlooks the pool. yeah I hit the <laughs> his apartment obviously more important yes. yeah it is and it my is. business
0: cards are made of bone <laughs> mm.
1: I start clenching paper <laughs> you do it for DVD. (laughs) This one's (laughs) holographic. No holograms on my DVD yeah. cover. I want it to be straight. I want it to respect the art. If it's not a Criterion collection, I ignore it. No. Uh, um, yeah, but I remember it built a really strong cult following after it was released. Oh, yeah. People were quoting it more frequently, and Scott actually got to see it before I did, and if "You really need to see this movie. I think you'd really like it. It's really your your kind of movie." And I'm like, okay, I'll get around to it. And that was just me being lazy, not wanting to see a new movie or something like that. I think I bought it
3: for you for Christmas. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And I hadn't seen it. Like, why would Scott buy me something I I haven't seen? It's good. Then I finally watched it. Like, okay, now I get it. Now I know why Scott wanted me to see it. And I love it. I think it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I got over my stupid prejudices.
0: I am too, Sean. Yeah.
1: You know, I just that's going by Roger Ebert is is not the best way to
3: go. They call
0: that growth.
3: Well, I think that I mean that's a very common thing. Is like you think you're not going to like something. Like I could had the same effect with Game of Thrones. I didn't think I would like it. And then I start watching it, and I'm like, oh, I get why this is what it is. Yeah. You know? And I think everybody has experience like that where you don't want to watch something because you have this bias against it for whatever reason it is. And then you watch it, and you're like, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Or right, <laughs> this is something right. I enjoy. Why, was I, why did I wait so long?
1: I think for me, it was it, it's stupid, but I think it, it fits right into the American Psycho theme, which is. I probably secretly knew I would enjoy it, but I was like, I was afraid to say that because of other cinephiles that gets bad, Then I'm wrong.
0: Well, the fact <laughs> that you just ridiculed. use cinephiles as <laughs> I just
1: opinion. wanted to fit in with my cinephiles. You I wanted to fit in. You
0: know, it's funny <laughs> when I first saw this movie with people
1: um, I'm not even hanging out with publicly either. So,
0: um, so in 2000, I was 14, the ripe old age of 14, and I remember my dad rented this from the video store. I don't know if he thought I, I. I have no idea what my father thought while he rented this movie because because Christian Bale's on the cover with a knife. It's called American Psycho. He might have just thought it was a horror movie, you know, in the traditional sense. And I remember sitting down and watching it with him and my stepmom uh, at the time, and uh, you know, she was very particular in her own ways. But um, the first, I would say, probably ten minutes of the film I got to watch, and I really. I enjoyed it. I got the humor, the, you know, the humorous aspects of it. And, you know, you see the whole um, introduction when they're in the bar and just the conversation with, you know, can you cool it with the anti semitic remarks. I just thought it was really funny on top of the fact, you know, yeah. I thought, you know, as a 14-year-old girl, mm-hmm. I thought Christian Bale was hot. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was really funny and and I, and I was liking it. And then my time with the movie got cut very short when the scene where Patrick's on the phone and they're watching porn in the background. Right. My dad's like, oh, no, no, cover your eyes. And, nope, cut it off. we got to watch it later when she goes to bed. So I did not get to watch the rest of the movie. But that, of course, sparked an immediate interest in me to say, whenever I have an opportunity to watch this movie again, I want to finish it. So I, that was my first experience with it. I, I didn't really know what to think because I, I saw the humorous parts. But then... When my dad freaked out and cut it off, I thought, well, maybe, is this like an adult movie? I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until years later that I actually got to finish it. And I remember after thinking, like everybody else, what, what really did I just watch? Did this happen? Was it a dream? But I enjoyed the humor and I loved the stylistic, just the aesthetics of it. Uh, I thought it was really funny. Of course, it was pretty violent. But I never really went into it. I didn't take it too seriously, and I think it, it really sets the tone from the get go. You, you're either gonna you're either gonna take it very seriously, and if you do, then you might be offended by the film and you may not enjoy it. But I think if you go into it with a different perspective of oh, this is this is funny, this is dark humor, this is they're making fun of. Of people like this, mm-hmm. uh, then you'll probably enjoy it a little bit more. You know, the chainsaw scene, I think, is a good example of, It's a, it could be a really blurry line. You either mm-hmm. think it's kind of silly and funny, or you're really terrified, and you're like, what am I watching?
2: Right. Yeah. That, that scene, as you were yeah. talking before you even mentioned it, that scene, to me, the, the, the really graphically violent scenes are... are in most cases so absurd Mm -hmm. that they do you know border on the humorous and that one in particular stands out because he is running buck naked except for his sneakers right with uh yeah with his um chainsaw you know through the through the apartment she's screaming he's screaming and that's that gets into the whole fact of the believability of of whether he actually is committing these crimes, which we yeah. can talk about later, but that scene—the scene with Paul Allen with the newspaper down mm-hmm. and the yes. the axe and the the raincoat that he's wearing—all while um,
0: the little dance that he does, yeah, it's hilarious. Po-
2: pontificating it's about yeah. Huey Lewis and the news, you know, while he's getting ready to uh, lodge an axe into uh, Paul Allen's face, like it's it's um it's very bloody, it's very gory, it's very graphic, but it's almost cartoonish to yes. the point that it's it's um it's part of that satire and the absurdity that, exactly. that that takes away to me the like the impact or the the horror aspect of it which is why mm-hmm. I don't really feel it as a horror movie.
0: And you either you know when you're watching it you're, you either find yourself being absolutely horrified by Patrick Bateman or kind of on his team. You know, like the scene where he's getting ready to kill Paul Allen. At this point, we think Paul Allen is this pompous jerk, and we're kind of ready to see him die. You know, we're like, okay, bring it on. He's got his raincoat on, and he's doing the dance, and, you know, you start to laugh, and you kind of feel it with him. Um, Or you're just to the point where you're just horrified, and you're like, oh, my gosh. You know, how about the scene when he takes his assistant home, and he has, like, that power tool behind her head. Obviously, he doesn't use it, but how silly. I mean, just absurd, you know, uh absolutely, and um, the other scene that I was going to mention, um, oh, the scene when they're they're having a threesome, you know, and they're playing Susudio, and just the whole time, he's staring in the mirror looking at himself,
2: right? just the gestures right. that
0: he's making, you know, you're like, this guy is such a narcissist, on top of being sociopathic and psychopathic, yeah. he's like a narcissist, and he's insecure, and, um, but you just can't help but laugh at it, even though he's really doing some awful things to women in that scene mm-hmm. in terms of how he's treating them. Um, somehow, at least to, for me, I don't know, I somehow like overlook that because I'm just so fixated on him just being so over the top.
2: Yeah. Right. And, and I think a lot of the criticism that the film received, in addition to, to just the violence itself, was that it was misogynistic and a, mm-hmm. the objectification of women. And I can understand that argument, but um, I was watching an interview um, that was done back at the time of the release of the movie on Charlie Rose with um, Brett Easton Ellis, the man who wrote the novel that the film was based on, Mary Heron, the director, mm-hmm. and Christian Bale. And and, they, and the the novel and the film really are critiques and really indictments of male behavior in that era so it's it's really i mean it's got, it's got a female director and I, and I understand that you can look at the scenes where he's directing these two prostitutes to do these lewd acts but that the comment is on how self-obsessed yes. these these men were in, in in this era and i'm sure many men to this day who act that way are like and you know how how horrific that kind of behavior is that they're the only thing that patrick bateman is interested in is satisfying his own sexual lust and his blood lust and yes. anybody that he can use to satisfy and and feed those desires he's going to use
1: yeah i mean i think you you hit i 100 percent agree with what you st- said there about Absolutely. the misogyny because um Patrick Bateman's an anti hero, and the director, like you said, is Mary Heron, who's female. And um, Patrick Bateman's behavior is supposed to be kind of deplorable. We're not supposed to be looking at these scenes and saying, wow, this guy's a great man. I'm going to emulate everything he does. I think there's a cult following that surrounds it because it's so entertaining. Right. I think people like, are attracted to villainous anti hero roles because they like oh that's not something i would ever do in real life but it's fun to watch someone do this on screen but the point of view in those scenes especially the scene with with the two hookers mm-hmm. or the two prostitutes <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going misogynistic myself here hey the hooker scene uh like uh that we see their fear in that scene with him like the yeah. unexpected work he's asking them to do but we're laughing at him because he's talking. He's giving like dissertations on Genesis and mainstream '80s pop stars, mm-hmm. and it's hard not to get sucked into that and start laughing because Bale is a great comedic actor. It's yeah. a, this is really a comedic performance, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it really is. Um, you know, and and just the small nuances that that really made me laugh. And I think, you know, I do also want to touch on the fact that it was a female director. You guys know me. I'm a pretty strong woman's woman mm-hmm. in that regard. And there are some scenes in this movie that obviously um, are very offensive to women. And and yet I find this to be a movie I really enjoy. And, you know, so, so that's sort of odd, you know, for me to feel that way. But I think a lot of it is because it is directed by a woman that even though these are some bad acts being done... We're not really focusing on that. We're not really seeing that because we're so distracted by Patrick Bateman and what he's saying and and what he's doing, you know, looking in the mirror. And we've got a song like Susudio in the background. It's really humorous. Um, And I just love the subtle nuances in it. And, and, you know, every time Patrick Bateman finds himself in a position where he has to answer to someone or he has to tell the truth or he has to show, show some sense of identity or authenticity, his remark is, I have to return some videotapes. Right. And again, that's humorous. If you're yeah. somebody that has a, a sense of humor or a comedic background or an appreciation for you know, um, for comedy in that way, you're going to laugh at that. And so right away, again, you know, I think Mary does a really great job of setting the tone from the get-go in regards to having it be more of a black comedy with that conversation of them going around the table and just the way that Patrick conducts himself and... Yeah, I mean, Christian Bale is so brilliant in this movie, the way he says things, and I mean, you know, and then it, it it's like this, it really is just this funny dream, and the scene um, where he's at the dry cleaners.
2: Oh and yeah. he's yelling
0: and arguing with that lady and you know he's just going back and forth and all of a sudden he just snaps and he's like if you don't shut the fuck up I will kill you <laughs> you know and just he says it with like the smile on his face and like, nobody acts like they hurt him
2: he's <laughs> just Right as one of his yeah. friends walks in, the woman walks yeah. in, he kinda wants you can tell is attracted to him yeah. and, and uh she's like, What is that stain in your sheets? Like, I cranberry juice yeah. or you know yeah. he's like, this is yeah. clearly blood stains, yeah. it's it's a blood soaked so- sheet and uh but yeah, those lot- there's so many great lines yeah. throughout the movie that I, I just love. It's just um yes. and they're and they're sadistic lines, but they're woven in with the to, to provide levity, I mean the one that I that I'm thinking of is when he and Paul Allen meet for that uh, evening dinner.
3: At Texarkana, yeah, and,
2: and the and the waiter is trying to do the hard yes. sell with the specials, and he's yeah. like, he's like, "Would you uh, like to hear the specials?" And Patrick Bateman says, "Not if you want to keep your spleen." Yes. You know, it's like <laughs> but nobody it's acts like, like they heard right, right? It's yeah. like yeah. A completely yeah, yeah, yeah. matter of factly yeah. that he says that. And when the the lady at the bar in the first scene, the opening mm-hmm. scene, rejects his payment, he's. He says, "I want to kill you and play around in your blood." You know, yes. you're, you're, yeah. And then that—that that is a misogynistic line when he talks about, she's, you know, she's not attractive. And then mm-hmm. says, "I want to kill you and then play around with your blood." It's just so over the top that it's—it's funny. You know, and
0: it, you know, it just hit me now, Paul, when you we were talking about that because—and this makes total sense as to why I love the character of Patrick Bateman and am oddly attracted to him in many ways. of being attracted to someone but he is like macho man Randy savage he says these things so quickly these really offensive things so quickly but then moves on from it (laughs) that you don't even have a chance to like process what he's saying and you're just mesmerized by what he's doing and saying it just hit me yeah he's like macho man in that regard Think about it when he makes the comment, like, not if you want to keep your spleen. Right. then moves on to, like, <laughs> to the next thing, and you're kind of left, like, what happened? What did he just say?
3: Yeah, he he kind of wants to be... He makes... It's almost like he's daring people to catch him doing it. Yes! Right, right. Yeah. Yes. Nothing is... He never says anything sincere. Mm-hmm. My favorite scene... One of the early scenes is he's walking in, listening to Walking on Sunshine, and it's just that's... Right, that, that, right. That, that, that describes the whole movie. He's like he's listening to this, "Walking on Sunshine." Yeah, he's, calm, but he's got this stark glare on his face while he's listening mm-hmm. to it. Like, right, yeah, he's just absorbing it to, to have you know the fit in. Like oh, that. I
0: like it too when they're in the limo and he's like, everyone's like talking to him and he's like. He does like an overture, a narrative. He's like, I'm trying to listen to the new Robert Palmer tape. And Evelyn's just buzzing in my ears. Right, right.
2: Well, <laughs> That's and that, a great scene. and that, And that speaks to how we, what we talked about earlier in terms of everybody is in their own bubble. Like, he, he does not want to be disturbed by presumably the love of his life, which obviously is clearly not the case as the movie progresses. But this is his fiance, the man he's going to marry. And he is so wrapped up in himself and <laughs> yeah. catching the new yes. Robert Palmer tunes that he doesn't want to hear a word she's saying. <laughs> now, now, of course, her character... We've all been there. Right. <laughs> her, her character. <laughs> what? I mean, they certainly play off her character as being very shrill and vapid and not having much of very engaging conversation, which, again, maybe gets back to some of the, the talk of this being a misogynistic film, but... Um, I'm sorry,
0: Paul... I didn't hear anything you said. I was listening to Phil Collins' "Grace" too. <laughs> <Yeah.
2: laughs> no, yeah. I would not fault you for that. That, that man is a, a musical
3: genius. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've all been caught listening to Robert Palmer, and we don't hear anything right.
0: else from anybody else. Stop was, speaking. It, on misogynistic. How about those music videos? Yeah, it, yeah. it's oh,
2: yeah. it's it's interesting. I I have uh, I have been trying to uh, to lose some weight, and I've been working out lately, and um, have have. I I used to get on YouTube and I usually um,
0: can
2: you do a thousand crunches? No, I did, Well, Well, okay, a, a, little, a, a little side note, and again, maybe this is me being the, the narcissist. This is the Patrick Bateman and me and That's the narcissism. Why I love you,
0: Paul. You're like, like Patrick Bateman. No, like
2: I I have always said that if if I could have anybody, it would be uh, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho or um, Brad Pitt. In Fight Club, like if I get, I, I don't, I don't like the big muscle bound dudes, like guys who are ripped but lean and cut, yeah. and like I mean the body that Christian Bale has in that movie is phenomenal, and, and um, I know, it, 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 but and i and reading about that he, he, you know he's obviously an obsessive pre- prepare freak when it comes to the roles he plays all you have to do is look at the machinist and all the weight that he lost for that movie he was smoking
3: cigarettes for that
2: yeah he was like eating an apple and a cracker and that was his diet diet for the whole day he's insane for this one they said he worked out but there was some limbo, which we may or may not want to talk about, but yeah, as, as uh, Tony's showing a picture of him flexing his biceps <laughs> in the mirror as he has sexual intercourse with the two prostitutes, <laughs> while the studio is playing in the background. Um, the right? <laughs> yeah, just to give everybody a whole picture, but yeah, he he supposedly there was some there was some controversy over how this film ultimately was going to be cast, and so there was some downtime where he refused to take. Any roles or auditions <laughs> to prepare for this movie and worked out obsessively by himself. And then in the pre-production before they started shooting was working out three hours a day with a yeah. trainer to get that mm-hmm. physique that he has, yes. which mm-hmm. is in that opening scene is just so it's it's it really is mesmerizing as you yeah. know, it's in terms of his his um narration like the inner monologue of him describing the obsessive daily routine of his herbal mask herb herb mint mask that he wears to keep himself looking young but that that also sets the tone um for the movie in terms of the narcissism in terms of him saying um that i'm I have all of these things here, but I'm not really there. I'm not, I'm, it's all, everything yeah. is skin deep. It's all on the surface, superficial, and there's really no substance or depth about who this person is or why he is the way he is.
0: Yeah. Just be sure that you don't use a toner with alcohol, because alcohol <laughs> <is>. That's
2: right.
3: <laughs>
0: Which is so funny, because we were watching this, and I said, Scott kind of gave me a look. I said, it's true.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah she, uh... It is
0: true, gang. Do not use any kind of toner, facial facial cream, soaps that have alcohol in them because it will dry your face.
3: That's good advice. Yeah. It's good. Patrick Bateman should come out with a line a skincare up. line. <laughs> yeah, he should. Because as Paul said, he looks mesmerizing. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I say that
2: as a, as a completely <laughs> heterosexual male, but yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, I, I, he is that that scene is is impressive when he's showering and you know yeah. he's doing yeah. his crunches throughout the movie and. Um. Yeah, he definitely got in probably the best shape of his life for that movie.
3: What's well, so specific of his day? Like, it's it's. I think that's what's mesmerizing. It's not just like I just use a facial. It's like he. I use a Herbal Max, and I do like a, I. apply this. I apply that. It's just like this. It,
0: He's very detailed. It's
3: very detailed, yeah. and then he had this 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 poetic inner dialogue about his, like this self critical. You know, like, I'm an abstraction, you know. Yeah. Peeling off his skin, you know. Peeling off his, you know. Like, cease to exist, he
2: says. Yeah, like, as as he's peeling...
0: well done. Yeah. he he gave that monologue and pulled the... He
2: he says, you can shake my hand, and and I'm there as... Yeah, Yeah. I'm there as flesh, but... (laughs) as I as, as he's peeling the mask mm-hmm. away he says I am simply not I'm there, there. And, and his tone is so great in terms of that yes. that you, you know that this is a man who is falling apart you know? yeah, it's, yeah it's, or it's, never
0: it's, really together right never right together yeah
2: I think that's something like
1: I really enjoy the movie on the the artificial level you know like when you're watching it just based on a piece of entertainment from start to finish Um, I think I struggle with the character of Patrick Bateman as far as satire goes because he's self-aware based on that moment like he says I cease to exist that's an indication of self-awareness and usually in a satire the character doesn't have self-awareness at all He basically like I'm happy being Patrick Bateman I'm happy doing all these things and then the director kind of shows you that and makes a commentary based on the behavior as to what's going on but what I find interesting is Patrick Bateman is clearly self-aware of the fact that he has no identity, no clear-cut identity right, right. Mm-hmm. that he's lost. And that adds an interesting layer, and I'm like, mm-hmm. who is Patrick Bateman for me? And I wonder who the filmmakers think he is, because is he, if he's self-aware, that means that he's aware of how vapid this whole thing is. And maybe, at the end of the day, he's self-loathing. Maybe that's what it is, is he's just a self-loathing individual who hates himself, and maybe that's why he envisions himself killing everybody because I think maybe he sees himself that way even if it's not actually happening
0: I think it's a mixture of both Um, and I say that going back to the comment he made in the car with Evelyn where I do believe that that was a moment of truth when he said I just I want to fit in that was him being completely truthful and then he has another really honest moment when he's with his assistant Jean when she you know they kind of have that moment and she says you know "Do, do you want me to go home and he says I think you should. Otherwise, I might, I might hurt you. Like, right, yeah, he was, right. he, and he said, I can't control myself. And even though she was interpreting it in the context of a romantic endeavor, he was saying, "Yeah, you should go home because I'm mean, going Otherwise, I might kill you." Right. Or, you know. Um. So I do think that was another moment of him being really honest with himself, um, struggling with, you know, kind of with going back and forth. You know, having this persona that he wants Gene to see, which is. The persona he wants everybody else to see—you know, making the fake reservations at Doria—and right, she even right. says, "Well, you didn't give a name," you know. but um, they know me exactly, yeah. you know. Versus the real him, who who has these really sick desires and tendencies.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, I think that that's it. Um, I think one of the scenes that's really interesting is with the homeless man, yeah. which is really getting into like uh, economics, almost like uh, like maybe even reganomics uh, where he's saying get a job you bum you know pick yourself up by the bootstraps and everything the, the bum's just like i just <laughs> need some money right now right i call him a bum again i'm going, <laughs> his name <laughs> is his name is al i remember cuz he, he al. asks al. his, he asked his, asked his right? name yeah he's yeah. like why don't you get a job al and then he stabs him and i think those scenes are like this patrick bateman If he's envisioning himself killing this guy, why is he envisioning this moment? Like, I think that's the thing that I struggle with with some of it is um, what—I'm trying to articulate it because it's it's complicated. I think when
0: you look at all the scenes in which he killed people—so let's take a look at Paul Allen. We'll take a look at that scene, and we'll also take a look at the scene with the prostitutes. Mm -hmm. They all have one common thread, and that's a sense of superiority. In that moment with Paul Allen, he's the conscious one. He's not drunk. He's in full control. Mm-hmm. He's superior to Paul in that moment. You know? Same thing how he is with, with the prostitutes. Same thing in, in, with the homeless man. And I think it all stems the fact that he's really insecure about his own security. Mm-hmm. You know? He, he's saying, oh, Paul Allen has a better view than me. You know, the whole scene with the business cards. Right. Um, it's all It all goes back to the fact that he never feels good enough. He does He doesn't feel like he measures up. Mm-hmm. Uh, to society standards, his own standards. Evelyn alluded to the fact that his father owned the company, so maybe there's pressure there. He even made the joke about, you know, come be a break, I'm, come from a divorced.
2: Family. Oh yeah, you that, that yeah. to me that was yeah. th- that is the only that's the only line in the movie, or only real mm-hmm. insight on who mm-hmm. Patrick Bateman is in terms of his backstory and and why he is the way he is and usually you know with most of the psychological thrillers or these kind of movies that we enjoy so much there's so much digging into their past about why hannibal Lecter is the way he is why buffalo bill is mm-hmm. the way he is and seeks out this transformation whereas with uh with patrick bateman i think that's i think that's part of the point mm-hmm. of this movie is that it everything is so surface level and there's nothing that really distinguishes Patrick Bateman from Paul Allen, from the other men in their office, that they're all just these empty suits and these clones of these wall street yuppies. And so I think, I think that's part of it is that there is no, there is no depth. There's no digging into the surface of who Patrick Bateman is. He's, he's truly, all surface all style no depth no substance
0: but when he does give us little fragments of his past they're all they're all wrapped around some kind of hurt a divorced childhood i'm i'm from a divorced childhood i can tell you how painful that is um, the, the feelings of inadequacy i just want to fit in you know even though he hates the job he's just doing it to fit in you know all those little things um, obviously there is a lot of hurt and, and shallowness and and just insecurities and inadequacies and all of those feelings of shame and 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 maybe even guilt to some degree maybe he blames himself for his parents divorce i mean i'm getting you know a little like deeper in here but you know i think all of those things contribute to the fact of why he's why he's trying so hard to be viewed as this equal independent you know worthy wall street yuppie guy like his like his colleagues even though he doesn't really even like them himself Mm -hmm. he doesn't really seem to enjoy being in their company he doesn't care really for any of them but it's just a means of having some kind of security and family even if you will like having a place that you belong Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know because when the scenes that we see him in the scenes where he's at home he's very alone you know, there's a difference between just being by yourself and then being, like, lonely and alone. And if you think about it, with the exception of the morning routine scene, every time he's at home, he's either on the phone, talking to someone else. It's like he doesn't, he's not comfortable being alone.
3: Mm-hmm. That's
0: why he's always listening to music. Or he's draw like, he there's there's always a sense of he has to be doing something. He can't just sit there and be alone. You know, like when he's working out, he's watching... Thre- Slasher films and porn. <laughs> right, he's right. never
2: really fully alone. Mm-hmm. And and yet all yet there, these are all these superficial, mm-hmm. artificial uh, means of connecting. Mm-hmm. Where in in reality, he has he has zero human connection mm-hmm. with anyone in that movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's he, he's able to put up the facade of being a, a high functioning Wall Street. Um, young up-and-coming executive but it's it is a facade and there is Mm -hmm. there is no and i think and again i think that's the the point of the movies that they don't dig deeper too too deeply into any of why he is who he is because it's kind of just a blank slate he's just he's -hmm. just a lost soul trying to make his way in this this sea of of conformity where everybody kind of is the same and has to try to stand out because of their fancy suit or their their impressive business card yeah i I, you know i think you hit on a great point which is any of these characters
1: could have been the main character of this film paul allen could have Mm -hmm. been the main character and it probably would have been a similar take like they're all it just happens to be patrick bateman Mm -hmm. is the one we focus on and um you know, and, and you're absolutely right. It's like we don't want to maybe know too much about his past because it would, the satire wouldn't be as effective. We right. Make a comment right, like All these Wall Street guys have shallow, vapid lives when they're not—this is stereotyping everybody on Wall Street—but but they because they're so materialistic and they're only go, going after these superficialities like the best apartment, the best restaurant, the mm-hmm. best women— the best everything. Everything had to be the best. And they all want to be the top guy in the mm-hmm. room, like you say, that's the competition. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there's no depth to them outside of that. They don't have an identity outside of just being a Wall Street guy. You know, that's Well their...
0: not in this film anyway. Not in this but film, exactly. yeah, yeah. In this movie. Because when you get to know people, when you know a little bit about someone's past and their childhood, what does that do? That creates a connection between you and that person or that character on on the screen. And I think the director, and and I'm sure that the author, I I haven't read the book, um, but I think the director did a really great job of of not letting us know too much because then we would be invested in him. Mm -hmm. Then we would have a connection with him emotionally on some level, whether we felt sorry for him or sympathized with him or, you know, connected with him because maybe we felt that way ourselves. Mm -hmm. We would have an emotional tie to him. But because we really know very little about him other than what we see, which is shallow on the surface. It takes away um, any f- ability for us to like really feel for him. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're either you're just kind of watching it.
2: The only other light that I that I'm as we talk about this that I that I see that is shown on who he is or who he might be, depending on how much what's how you interpret what's real and what's illusion, is the fact that he's repeatedly referred to as a loser, a dork, spineless. You know, when yes. Paul Allen mistakes him for Halberstam, he says they discuss Evelyn Reese Witherspoon, his mm-hmm. fiance, and, you know, he doesn't realize that he's talking to Patrick Bateman when he says, um, I can't believe Evelyn's dating that loser. You know, he's talking about Patrick <laughs> Bateman to his face. Yeah. And then at the very end, when he when he meets up with his attorney, which is obviously getting way toward, way ahead to the end of the movie, but when he meets up with the attorney to whom he's made that big voicemail, open confession of all the murders he may or may not have committed, that guy doesn't know who he is. He's, yeah, he thinks he's exactly. Davis, yeah. and he's like, "I." It, that's what made your voicemail yeah. so funny because Bateman's so spineless and a dork, you know? And so, mm-hmm. you know, that that may shine a little bit of light on on his resentment toward other people. But I'm not even sure if that's, I think the comment there, again, is just how interchangeable each one of these Mm -hmm. um, Wall Street bankers are, that they're all the same person and nobody really knows who each other is beyond the surface level and gets everybody's names mixed up and you know they they may get the name right sometimes but nobody really knows who they are well
0: it's like in in the business card scene uh, i can't remember the gentleman's name that walked in but patrick the narrator patrick Bateman, as the narrator says you know He's, he's always getting me mixed up for such and such because he has a affinity for Valentino suits and all of people, all of people's glasses, just like he does. <laughs> you know? Which, if you look around, they all do. Right, they all, all do. Yeah, I love that line they have the too. Same, yeah, yeah, they yeah. have the same glasses. They all pretty much have the same suit, more or less. And and exactly. So you know, um, you know. But also from a psychological perspective. Uh, Definitely, as as I mentioned earlier, is is clear indication of, you know, identity crisis, not knowing who you are. And I think that's really the root of the story of Patrick Bateman and what we see anyway. Um, Again, I haven't read the novel, so I can't really speak to that. But I've, I've, I've personally never really had an identity crisis myself. But I imagine if you were going through one, it's probably linked to obviously how you're living your life and the people that are in your life at that moment in time. And so for him, everything is the same. Everybody looks the same. He's just trying, you know, when you, well, how can I say? I've been in situations, relationships, Mm -hmm. friendships, where I was out of my element and I tried hard to fit in with that person or that group of people. And so I found myself doing things they enjoyed doing more than I did. I found myself maybe wearing clothes that, that they wore more than I did and so on and so forth. Um... And when you do that for so long, you do lose a sense of identity. Yeah. You know, you start, you definitely lose that, that sense of identity. And you say, who am I? Where did the old, quote-unquote, Tony go? You know, why am I not living my life day-to-day doing things that I enjoy? And so on and so forth. So maybe this is a deeper look, you know, this dream or the story of what we see on screen is Patrick Bateman's identity crisis and realizing, hey... Who am I anymore? I could be Paul Allen. I could be the other guy, you know? Um, so I don't know. It's kind of interesting. But ha- have any of you guys ever been in situations like that where you found yourself around people and you you take a step back and you say, how are any of us different? You know, this, cha- this is changing me.
1: No, I've always felt like I was a different one in the room. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, wow, I don't have anything in common with these people. No, I, I know what you mean, though. Like, uh... I, I don't think I've ever had that experience, really. I What I would say is, I've always felt necessary to conform to a room, to what everyone else is doing you in order feel to that fit you in. Do. Yeah. And that's
0: exactly that's, what you're talking about. That, that, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and I'm that. drawing on my time when I was a cheerleader in high school. You know, um, I was a freshman at the time, and I was on varsity squad, so I was with juniors and seniors who, you know, even though they were a couple years older, it made a big difference. You know, when you're 14 years old, a freshman, they're talking about things that you haven't even experienced or seen, and, you know, um, it's hard to connect with them, really. But I found myself trying to fit in and, you know, wearing similar clothes and trying to hang out with them and stuff just to build a relationship because we were all cheerleaders and... I was also the flyer, so I had to put a lot of trust into them to to mm-hmm. catch me when I when I flew up in the air. But I only did it for one year because at the end of the year, I I, I realized I don't like these people. They're mm-hmm. not girls that I would be friends with. They don't do things that I feel comfortable doing that I would that I even like doing, you know. And and I that I dropped it after that year, and I, didn't, I haven't ever cheerleaded since. Uh, I got into theater and, and ballet, which is so much more true to who I am, but. Even though that was a really long time ago, I always remembered that, you know. And when I watch some of these scenes, kind of like with Patrick Bateman, it's very similar. I think the way that those guys are, it's similar to like a football group or a cheerleading squad when on the surface you're seeing the uniform. So they all do look alike. You know, you're not really taking a look at each individual one, each person as an individual. It's more like, oh, they are the such and such. They're vice, of, you know, the Buckeyes. Mm-hmm. You may have your star players, but, but from a broad perspective, they're just like one unit that's all the same.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I, I know exactly what you're going through. Like, I spent a good portion. Like, you always, I always felt pressured to mm-hmm. downplay aspects of my personality to fit in. Yes. Or maybe tr- not necessarily be another person, but you're hiding mm-hmm. aspects of your personality. Or you're trying very self-conscious about coming yeah. off a certain way how you're dressed. What you talk about, yeah, it is, it is. Um, And the sad thing is, like it take it took me a number of years to just go. It doesn't. The broader your options are for a social circle, the less you have to rely on that. That's a good thing. What's wrong with Patrick Bateman, and what happens with a lot of people is they feel like they have to conform to stand out in the mainstream Mm -hmm. with a bunch of people. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to act if you want to be. Yeah. Top tier in in the in, in the in the country. This is what you have to do.
0: Well, that stems a lot from insecurity it is. and inadequacy. I think if if you're more comfortable with who you are, you know, I came to a point my younger life, when I said, I like who Tony Sacco is. You know, I like that I like Hanson, and I like that I like Mm -hmm. whatever I like that they maybe didn't like, and I said, F them, you know? They're the ones with the problem, not me, you know, and you walk away from it. There's a big difference in how your attitude is and, you know, uh, how you move forward from that point, but Patrick Bateman is incredibly insecure. Mm -hmm. Um, He has really no support system, which, again, could be a result of his childhood, know we don't know about him is he an only child maybe Mm -hmm. so he doesn't have any siblings that he could rely on for companionship but but exactly you know i think it's if someone is a little bit more um, self-assured they're able to 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 identify what's happening and say hey i don't need these people i'm not gonna you know hang out with people who make fun of me for liking paul stelzer
1: I'm going to like Paul Stelzer all I I love Paul Stelzer, too. I love the monkeys. But when are in high
0: school, exactly. Well, it's, well, it's similar
1: the, I spent grade school defending my love of the monkeys in 86. <laughs> that was a tough period for me. And I still defend the monkeys to this day. So,
0: But um, we see a lot of that even in American Psycho. You know, They all yeah. refer to Patrick Bateman as a loser You know, and, and that kind of thing. Why, why? is she dating him? And it's the same way in high school, you know. Oh, Tony, why are you? You know, why are you friends with Sean? Why do you do podcasts with Sean? Seriously, that's what you see. It's it's really in, similar to.
1: They're asking show. you that in high school.
0: <laughs> you know what you talk I mean, to
1: these girls, right? I'll set them straight. No. I
0: mean, no, like you know what I'm saying. People if you're oh, hanging yeah. out with uh, someone who's maybe whatever, people will make fun of you or say, "Why are you dating Paul?"
2: Right. Right.
1: You
0: know, because for whatever reason. Paul's viewed as
1: a nerd. Right. Yeah. I'm, just glad that <laughs> That's not... I'm just glad that stuff stops when we're adults. <laughs> yeah, right. If only. It <laughs>
0: Never happens when you're adults. Everybody accepts
1: everybody equally at that point.
2: But it, it is an interesting tangent, or that what if um, that that you're talking about in terms of kind of the psychological backstory of Patrick Bateman, because then this is trivia which we don't have to spend a lot of time on now but the what if is at one point when Lionsgate signed on and and got the rights to do this movie they they pushed temporarily Mary Heron and Christian Bale off the project and tentatively assigned Oliver Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio to do this project and the, Leonardo that's the first I ever heard of this film was two or three probably two years before it was made or released uh, DiCaprio was coming off of Titanic. He was the yeah. you know teen idol, and he was attached to this project. And I just thought, yeah. and I didn't had no idea other than it was a, a graphic look at you know a, a character who was violently uh, had had violent tendencies. And I thought he just seems so wrong for that. He's, he's such a, to me at the time, I've grown to respect him as an actor since, but to me still seemed very much like a lightweight, <laughs> very, very young looking. And, and ultimately the studio, the studio veered away from him because of that. But the, and I got off on a tangent there. The thing about Oliver
0: Stone—you never get off on tangents. Yes,
2: well. I always. Yeah, that's that's the my middle name. But <laughs> Oliver Stone really wanted to turn the movie away from the satire, so the story goes, and focus on the psychological traits of Patrick Bateman and his background and why he is the way he is, and um, and ultimately the the studio. Um, decided well dicaprio left and decided to do the beach instead which i've never seen may have been a good movie um stone dropped out and heron and christian bale came back in um ewan mcgregor was offered the part but christian bale reportedly made a personal plea to him not to take the part because he Mm -hmm. took nine months off to prepare for this role and it really was Bale saw this as the role of a lifetime, and and it was. I mean, it was. uh, I had never seen him before, and I think that was important for this movie too—to have a relative unknown play Patrick Bateman, because if you have Leonardo DiCaprio in that role, you're just constantly flashing back to Titanic, that was still so fresh. Whereas for me, that was the. I did not see Empire of the Sun. I had not seen Newsies or any of. Uh, Christian Bale's work when he was much younger so when he comes on as this mysterious figure as Patrick Bateman I'm like who is this guy And, and, and he's dynamite like his acting is phenomenal he's created this once in a lifetime character and I don't know anything about his real life backstory and it lends into the fact that I don't know anything about Patrick Bateman's lifestyle and I just think it was a perfect casting a you know, perfect man for a perfect role at the perfect time of his career and to this day he is he's one of my all-time favorite actors based on that and the work he has done since but in terms of the actors from my generation and younger the people that are under the age of 50 uh, he's at tops of the list for me batman was standing i'm not I, I think the batman movies were batman never never Not including Batman. Batman, I think, were great movies. That's not his finest acting work, but but um, but he. uh, I thought Batman Begins. You know, the origin story was interesting. But bottom line is, this is when I really first discovered Christian Bale, and have always marvelled at his commitment to the roles he makes and how he disappears into the roles that he takes in the years since, in the past 17 years since this movie was released.
1: Yeah, I'd love to, to follow up on, on a couple of those, because I've been thinking about that same stuff when I was reading the background story. Um, I might say even say a few controversial things about that. Um, I've never, as most people know, I am not a fan of Leonardo DiCaprio in general. Not that I think that he's talentless. I just think the pedestal he's been placed... As an actor, is a lot higher than you know other people. Like some people would put him in the list of the greatest actors of all time at this point, or the greatest actor of his generation. I actually feel Bale, like you said, fits that description more heavily. Um, I'm not disputing that Leo's done some fine work. I think he would have been completely miscast for this particular role. Like I think for the same reasons you mentioned, he's just too young. But I think Leo is someone that pushes himself into roles he's not necessarily right for because I think he really wants to prove himself to be like a Christian Bale-type actor. And I think he's better at lighter fare like Catch Me If You Can and maybe The Great Gatsby and, and movies like that.
0: That was not a great movie. Oh, well,
1: I haven't seen it. <laughs> so, um, Oliver Stone, for the same reasons, I, it's another guy I just found really overrated as a filmmaker. I think that he has a sledgehammer approach to filmmaking with... Of real lack of subtlety and i really like what uh mary heron brought to this role because it, it emphasized the comedy and the satire a lot more and she herself said he would have been the worst possible director right, for this right. project uh and i completely agree with her i, I think his ideas there would have been a lot of back and forth editing of flashbacks to bale's childhood that were inappropriate and wouldn't make a lot of sense um and I completely agree with you on, on Bale. Like, Bale is probably one of my favorite actors of this generation. You know, I know he's had complications off-screen sometimes. Right, right. He's not always the
2: nicest guy on
1: set. Yeah. But I think that he, he is a fantastic actor. I loved him. I think he looks like an adult in this movie. It's so crucial for you to... He looks like a yucky. Right, right. He right. looks like a full-fledged adult, lived-in adult that's been in New York working for a long time. Uh, he just looks the role. He looks, he looks the part. And even in movies like The Fighter, which I thought he was exceptional in, you know, I love this Batman. I think this movie got him Batman. I think that they saw this like, oh, this guy could bring an interesting twist to Bruce Wayne. You know, the the edgy, you know, yuppie. You know, not that Bruce Wayne's a yuppie, but the tortured, like Bruce Wayne billionaire. It, it, it's there's a lot of parallels with 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 Patrick Bateman. You know, that you could you could twist there. Right. Right. Um, you know but i think this is actually my favorite performance of his and i'm a batman fan so right. i would say i still prefer him in american psycho above all else because he's so funny in this yeah too. yeah and the physical comedy in that scene the famous scene where he wears the raincoat and he has the axe in his hand is is on the level of jim carrey i mean it's that good when he's dancing, dancing around, the around, the movie around Lewis. with the raincoat yeah. His yeah, axe yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no it's not you know it, it's
3: brilliant yeah
0: his yeah. timing is just amazing
3: yeah yeah it's timing and you know i agree with everything um the first scene i ever saw this movie was the the uh business card scene yeah yeah Cause i was in an english class and it was some we had some project where we had to bring in some part of a book or a movie or something and just kind of talk about it and someone brought in that scene on a dvd of him showing the business card and I remember watching it, I was like wow that's really interesting how detailed they get into that <laughs> <laughs> I was like I oh, God.
0: yeah Did you say the thickness of it
2: right like the that thing. that scene is 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 is, is such a great scene yeah, it's like yeah. it, I mean it's it's probably outside of the of the studio, um mm-hmm. act scene it's probably the and maybe the other gory yeah. scenes is probably the most memorable and funniest scenes there is because of how Obsessed they all are with having the best business card, and you can see how smug. Uh, Patrick <laughs> Bateman is when he lays down uh-huh. his business card, and he's and they're like, "That's nice." And he's like, "It's bone." Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> a
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, then, of the white coloring, <laughs> right. you know. And then, then some,
2: somebody else slides down the yeah. uh, the neck. It's eggshell with uh, Pygmalion f- font, <laughs> and and it's like, and you can see the the meltdown going on inside of yeah. Patrick Bateman at that moment when um when he realizes that somebody might have a better business card than he has, and then his his, his uh, voiceover at that point, his inner monologue. He's like, "I can't believe that Bryce thinks that so and so has a better business card than mine." You know, it's like, and he's like on the verge of tears. It looks like because of over something so trivial, and and then of course to trump it all, <laughs> Paul Allen has the best one that oh, everybody sure. talks about. Which I think of all the people that uh, Patrick Bateman kills or is imagined to have killed. That's the that's the one that I think. Getting back to way way back to where we started on the the murder of the homeless man, I feel like the murder of the homeless man and the murder of the the two prostitutes are both kind of random acts of violence where or something just is triggered in the moment and he kills them. Whereas Paul Allen is someone that he truly mm-hmm. resents for all the attention he gets for having the Fisher account and being kind of the star of the of pierce and pierce and having the better apartment and the better business card and being able to get the seven o'clock friday night reservation at Dorcia. you know so i think that that is a a true motivation to want to get rid of paul allen and 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 that one makes sense the other ones i think are completely senseless the other kind of deaths or murders that happen throughout the movie I think you're right. Yeah, I, um, one thing that another great
1: context, and I think it was in the book too, is that all these guys worship Donald Trump. This is based oh, in 1987, yes. they mention it. And, and in the movie, he says, Oh, Ivana, is that Ivank? Is it Ivana Trump? So Ivana's over there? the mother, yeah, yeah Donald's at wife at the time. And man, that makes this even more relevant now than ever, you know, in the context of that, you know, that, that it just shows you how long Trump's been in the public eye that this movie. These guys, that's their point man, who they right. all want
2: to ultimately be is Donald Trump. Because even there, there are two different... There's the, the one in the restaurant when he says, is that Ivana Trump? Uh-huh. And they show a shot of her and it's clearly not. And I, yeah. I don't know whether they really intended to have somebody playing Ivana Trump, but it, it's clearly not. So to me, that was kind of an indicator of the, he's, he's losing it or he wants... To, he wants to be able to tell people that I dined with Ivana Trump. Yeah. And like when he's in the limo, he's like, Is that Donald Trump's car? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's a different scene, but it's like this kind of need to be affiliated with the real movers and shakers in Manhattan. Um, but yeah, the eighties references that are kind of woven in there almost as as an afterthought also just add so much levity to me. Like when he's when he's meeting with um detective um... The, the detec- detective Kimball, Willem Dafoe, yeah. and at the to wrap it up, he's like, I've got to go. I've got uh, lunch with Cliff Hu- Huxtable at Ford's season. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like, you yeah. know, I mean, even in, in 87, everybody knew who Cliff Huxtable was. I mean, yeah. they, you couldn't just throw that out there with unless the detective is completely oblivious to pop culture. Yeah. You know, you would have known that that was a made up line or yeah, a lie yeah. just to Cliff get out of Huxtable. the interview, right? <laughs> and there were several times. That he, he he is Patrick Bateman says just say no, and he's not referring to drugs, but it's all I know tied into Nancy Reagan's anti-drug campaign, and it's just it's it's just it's so much fun to kind of pick up on those things and these kind of wink wink inside jokes throughout the movie.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm glad you brought the the '80s references because the
1: ultimate '80s references in this movie for me are the pop music references. Those are the best... My favorite scenes in the movie as a pop music aficionado. His critiques of Huey Lewis and Phil Collins and Genesis and Whitney Houston are absolutely hilarious.
0: Did you know that, Christy? (laughs) I (laughs) I did. Did 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 you
1: know know that? that? (laughs) Um, Because they read like an actual review from rolling right, stone right dot com, where they're really dissecting the movie in firm detail the music in firm detail but it's always the opposite of what a critic would say like the more vapid the music becomes or the more artificial he loves it but critiques it in fine detail right and that's right. hilarious to me that juxtaposition uh i mean the huey lewis thing about like a little too new wave in the beginning but once they got into sports they found a full sound I, I, I absolutely love that stuff and for the record I actually
2: do love Huey Lewis and Genesis
1: you know for too yeah yeah and,
2: and Robert Palmer too like I I yeah he made some he he's gone now he, <laughs> yeah. he died he lived a young uh short life but he uh and he, he was more of a he does not have the catalog that that's a Obviously, Phil Collins and Genesis has, or even Huey Lewis in the News, but for that one like three year stretch with "Addicted to Love" and "Simply Irresistible," Mm -hmm. and then the power station stuff that he did, "Bang a Gong," and and which were kind of rip off of T-Rex songs. But I mean, he was a big deal, and he he is kind of an epitome of that '80s style when you think of those videos of him in in his suits and his finely coiffed hair and the, the women. All made up the same dancing behind them
0: I am um, speaking of the music I'm glad you you guys brought it up because I enjoy it as well that I think those are some of the funniest moments in the film, and they're also beautifully blended into the m- most horrific moments in the right. film too, so you have that that this juxtaposition of humor and horror, um, which I think is really the crux of this movie, as we've already discussed. But um, for, for all the listeners out there, for your enjoyment, as well as my own pleasure, um, I have created a, a playlist. Um, I It's entitled Patrick Bateman's Walkman. Nice. And it's mm-hmm. pretty much like a soundtrack of the <laughs> film with some other songs that I think Patrick might have approved of. So I'll happily share it um, on the Cinema Milite page. I think I've actually sent it to you guys before. Mm-hmm. Um, But it's a lot of fun. I I love curating playlists on on Spotify. So if you like this one, feel free to check me out. I've got so many other movie-themed style playlists as well, but... I wanted to honor my friend Patrick in doing this, and um, <laughs> I thought it was was only fitting to to say that it would be things on his Walkman, being that we're in 1987.
1: That's awesome. I'm gonna check out that playlist soon myself. You know, because i think Be that's, sure to
0: critique it. I
1: will. I will critique it in firm detail. Yeah. There's also a reason why he's they picked Huey Lewis and Phil Collins and Whitney Houston. And they're not picking the replacements REM or mm-hmm. bands like that. It's like these guys are the epitome of mainstream. Because right. it's, 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 everything's about the mainstream. You know, like and he's fitting in and Yeah, and fitting in. And and even Hip Square, that's the whole thesis he has. It's funny because this was pointed out to Huey Lewis, because when the movie came out, they didn't let their music be used on the soundtrack. And it wasn't because Huey Lewis was offended by it or took took umbrage with it. It's because he had songs on the Back to the Future soundtrack that I never sold. He says, people don't buy soundtracks okay, unless <laughs> it's a full okay. album of my material. And they asked him, what did you think of... The fact that you were referenced in American Psycho in this fashion, he goes, well, I thought it was an interesting critique of us, <laughs> like actually taking Patrick uh, Bateman's uh, critiques yeah, 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 seriously. Exactly, yeah. yeah, and he, he said um, he actually did a parody of this on uh, Funny or Die, where he played Patrick the Patrick yeah. Bateman role. I've with seen Leland parts Yangevic of that. Yes, doing That's the good. Paul Allen, which was fantastic.
3: <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of like stuff you miss in this movie of just great lines. I think there's a line of a couple guys storing cocaine in their room, <laughs> and they start shouting at each other. He's like, "Fuck you, fuck you!" And then that Bryce guy goes, "Hey, fuck you!" Oh, sorry, dude, steroids. Right, okay, right, steroids. yeah, exactly.
2: I, I wrote that down as I was watching it too, because it is it's such a uh, reference of the times, you know. And they and that that scene is so comical too, because they're in the men's bathroom, and every every toilet stall is a, is a different drug den. They're trying to do coke and the guy next to him <laughs> is trying to do some new drug and yeah, that's when he goes off on him and he, and lets, he apologizes to Patrick Bateman about his, his roid rage. So, well,
0: remember when they're but in, in the business card scene, when Patrick first goes to pull out his business card somebody goes, oh, is that an ounce? You got an ounce? Or is yeah. that something like oh, that? Oh, right, right. You he's pulling out drug, you know, yeah. drugs.
3: Yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. to go back to your point about Huey Lewis, they have a callback where uh, William Defoe's character has a Huey Lewis. Oh, All right, 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 right. And he's trying. To, he's asking him about it, and because he doesn't want to get caught, I guess I don't know what it is. But he says, "No, I don't like it." He's like, <laughs> he says, "You don't like?" He's like, "No, no, no." It's like I don't. It's just uh, Huey's too black sounding.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like that. That was the line. Like yeah. I, like that one to me. I, I guess it's just. All part of diversionary tactics uh, yeah. with the detective, but I wondered, I, I could, I, I still haven't made up my mind entirely, and would love to like talk to the writers, um, why, why he would not admit to light, and and maybe he just didn't want to bond or get too close or reveal too much of himself to the detective as to why. He truly does like Huey Lewis, and, and he won't tell him that. So, yeah. I think yeah. it
0: was he didn't want to let him in. You
2: know, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's keeping closed him. off. Yeah, yeah, like, not going to let you in, inside my bubble. So. It's funny you mentioned
3: screenwriters, because it was Mary Hutton <laughs> wrote it, and then the other one is in the movie as an mm-hmm. actress. She plays Elizabeth, mm-hmm. the one that makes fun of him for liking Whitney Houston. Yeah, the oh,
2: okay I, Kills. Yeah, that's, yeah, she she was one of the writers. Like, yeah. she, she he wrote the
3: screenplay. Oh with, my like gosh.
2: I, yeah, yeah, okay. So, I didn't realize that. That's a good piece of trivia. Yeah. And the
3: other way, I guess Patrick, I guess uh, Christian Bale based Patrick Bateman off of Tom Cruise. I, I
2: read that too. Yeah. Like just that
3: intense outward intensity, but nothing behind it. Like, that's dead eyes. Said, yeah. yeah. I was like, that's. <laughs> I'm sure Tom Cruise was thrilled with that. <laughs>
2: yeah, the ar- the article that I read and I'm sure it's the same one you saw it yeah. said that he was he was having trouble articulating Patrick Bateman and then saw saw uh, Cruise on Letterman yeah. and and identified with the yeah, the intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes, you know, it's like it's again that kind of superficialness and I mean I don't know Tom Cruise but who is more in a bubble that in the entire Hollywood community, whether it's Scientology or whatever else, like what do we really know about Tom Cruise I mean there's some of his backstory from when he was a kid but and marrying Katie Holmes but and Nicole Kidman yeah. but for the most part he is an he is Tom Cruise Inc you know Tom Cruise yeah. incorporated yeah he's a business and we he does not let anybody pass yeah. that force field and so that yeah that's that was that seems like a good uh, thing to draw inspiration from for this character oh I agree you know
1: it's actually like you said a great critique of Tom Cruise too right right it's not very <laughs> that, kind that of to as inspiration. Yeah. Right. that's almost a comment almost Right. Tom right. Cruise in and of itself <laughs> uh, but I, I thought it was brilliant I read that same thing and I thought it was brilliant when I read that it's like oh yeah Tom Cruise would be the perfect guy I mean that's who everybody in the 80s wanted to be, every guy that age. Right. They right. also wanted to be Tom Cruise.
3: And, and to Tom Cruise's credit, if this was made in 87, Tom Cruise would probably play. Patrick Bateman in a way he
1: would be a contender he yeah. would be the guy oh right, right he yeah. would have been the guy I, I, he's, really yeah. the, the,
3: the he's played similar characters
1: yeah. I think to that yeah he could have yeah, played he could have pulled that off yeah, yeah. yeah. Charlie Sheen would have been the other guy and Charlie they Sheen gone. yeah if they didn't get Tom Cruise They would have gotten and Charlie Sheen might have been better actually because he had that darker yeah. you know, you know what? I think could have
0: been good too uh, Robert Downey Jr.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 Well, and in watching the, this is again a a, a complete trivia thing, but the uh, I've never seen less than zero, but um, that's the Robert, one of the Robert Downey Jr. you know breakout movies, or one that he's known for. It's not seen as a great movie, but the writer of um, of American Psycho apparently either wrote the novel that less than zero was based on, or wrote the screenplay because in the interview with Charlie Rose with Christian Bale, Mary Harron, and Brett Easton Ellis. He said he always thought that his career was going to be known for less than zero until this came along. You know, mm-hmm. until American Psycho, you know, blew up. You know, in terms of the novel itself and all the attention that that received when it came out in '91, and then when the movie came out in 2000, it's what people will. I don't know what he has done since, but. This is what will always be his landmark film. I think.
3: Was this a hit movie?
0: Well, it was. It was. It was had mixed reviews when it came out in two thousand.
2: It did. It got
1: mixed yeah. reviews. It was more. It, it was an independent film. It was Lionsgate. It was one of their first, you know, releases because they were a new studio at the time. Uh, it was an indie film. You know, not an indie indie film, but like uh, like we mean by indie is this was not a movie that was intended to have a large audience at the time, you know. It was probably always destined to be a cult favorite, which it became over the years. It just yeah. became, like, The Big Lebowski is a similar movie. Where I think it's,
3: if it's reviewed now, I think yeah. it's more favorable. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, The right. Big Lebowski, right. there's just a lot of movies, I, I don't know what it is, but people are, people don't, I think people, when you watch it, you know, you're watching a lot of movies, you're critical, you know, you're critical of a lot of movies. Um, you know, you're just going through them like factory work. You know, yeah. Just going through Right, them. right. You don't know which ones are gonna people are going to watch and like, oh. Because a lot of movies are just like certain scenes. You just, the di- if the dialogue is good, it could save maybe some issues that right.
1: are in the movie. And- it's also a great comment on award season too, which is like they always go for what they consider the prestige films at the end of the year that the studios really put out there. This is the movie we really want to push for an Oscar. But years later, nobody remembers the film, or it's not remembered in a conversation. I'd say the Cider House Rules is an example of that. I mean, nobody really talks about the Cider House Rules anymore, but everybody talks and references American Psycho, which is a movie that was probably released in the same time period, roughly.
2: Yeah, it would be interesting to see what other films were up for, films and actors were up for Academy Awards the same season that American Psycho came out, because... It's hard to imagine anybody that had... It's hard to imagine five actors who had a better performance than Christian Bale had in American Psycho that year. Yeah. Yet that that film and that role is so controversial and so offensive to some people that it's too dangerous for the Academy to even throw a nomination its way. I don't think it received any nominations, even though it could have for... Christian Bale. No. It could have for a screenplay. It could have for a director, but I don't think it got any of those yeah, things. Yeah, it
3: uh, well, the winner that year was Gladiator. Okay, that's that's fair. I mean, that's yeah. that's a movie that holds. That's a movie that people talk about. Right? You know, yeah. Aaron it, Brockovich, which I think that
1: would probably yeah. fall a little bit by the wayside nowadays. Ch- chocolate say.
3: would probably no one really. Yeah. yeah. Traffic. You no, know, I saw it, but it doesn't.
2: Seem yeah, working. like it, it was a good movie. Yeah, I can't, I'm trying to remember.
3: And the last one was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I think, because it's so specific, it probably has a cultural impact
2: to
1: it. Yeah, it's probably the maybe the best film you've mentioned of the five nominated, even over Gladiator. It's like does it Tiger. list
2: the the best actor? Because I know that was the year that um, Russell Crowe like, yeah. would have won for best actor, but does it say who else was nominated?
3: Yeah, I'm going to get in here.
2: Because I'd be curious to see, and I probably have not seen all five... Both. Yeah, Russell
3: Crowe Run, Javier Bardem uh, Jeffrey Rush, Tom Hanks and Ed Harris were all nominated What
2: What were Ed Harris and Tom
3: Hanks nominated? Ed Harris for Pollock Okay, I didn't uh, see that Tom Hanks for Castaway. Away yeah. uh, I mean, I, it's a good movie but it's not... Yeah, Tom, but, Tom Hanks, you know, take it or leave it probably. Right, Tom Hanks yeah. has, has
2: had so many great roles yeah. that, that Castaway is not... That was a Lifetime Achievement nomination. So, yeah. Compared to, I mean, what Christian Bale did with American Psycho. As yeah, much I as I love Tom Hanks and put him yeah. on the pantheon of the greatest of all time, I mean, Christian Bale's performance in American Psycho is much more powerful than Castaway. You know, I wonder,
0: if they were to make American Psycho today... Removing Christian Bale from the opportunity to play um, Patrick Bateman, you know, I, w- I think I wonder if John Hamm would do a great job.
1: Yeah, Hamm would be a great great choice. You know? Yeah, he his I well, really do believe that cause
0: he you know he Don Draper was kind of a similar character,
2: right? Like so
1: secretive
0: yeah.
2: and and had that wall of uh, protection, the force field. Yeah, like fitting in and conformity, but also protecting and yeah. not letting people in.
3: I think it would be good. I, mean, I think the only thing would I mean, be probably older.
2: You know? Yeah, he, yeah, he, he would have to have been when, yeah, John Hamm, because, yeah, because, you know, Patrick Bateman says at the beginning of the movie he's 27 years yeah. old and Christian Bale would have been 25 when this was shot so it was the perfect timing for him to play that role. And it's
3: funny because John Hamm is so great at playing subtle stuff like, and, and you know, Don Draper's not a big talker. Mm-mm. You know, a lot of it's just looking at his face and what he's feeling, and John Hamm's great at that. And John Hamm can do that, but it's it's hard to imagine to be like blank.
0: But John Hamm has a great sense of humor, though too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I think that, he could hit the humorous aspects of of this role as well. I mean, I, I realize he's a little bit older now. I'm just thinking of of quality of actor,
2: right? Who right. Could
0: do, I mean, Christian Bale, obviously, number one, 100% choice all the way, always and forever. Mm-hmm. But if they were to reintroduce it, you know, thinking of the actors who are around today...
1: Who right. Would be,
0: who would be able yeah. to
1: do it I'm just thinking of other actors who would have played him in, in, in any era. I think one guy... I'm thinking Josh Brolin would be kind of an interesting choice although he's a little too rough-honed yeah. to maybe pull it off the way Bale does. I mean, to me, you know, like we said, Bale is probably the perfect choice in any era. Robert Danny
3: Jr. that you mm-hmm. said earlier. Yeah, that would have
1: been good. Someone,
3: uh, you know, yeah, I'm trying to think of any of the the people that have been, any of the Chris's could they play And Probably, I don't no. think any of them would be... I
0: think you need a brunette.
3: You yeah, need you need a do. tall, dark, and you handsome do. guy. Like you need a brunette. Yeah, you right. do. to play
0: this role. That's who Patrick Bateman is. I, I do think you know there are certain there are certain roles where you just have a physical idea of how somebody should be. I don't see a blonde as Patrick Bateman. How about Bateman. Jude Law? Yes, Jude Law. I think could be a good Patrick Bateman. And yeah, because he could do comedy, and mm-hmm. he obviously is a pretty boy.
2: Right, in right. He's his hair, you know. He's
0: a good looking guy, yeah. <laughs> but Patrick Bateman really hits the nail on the head because he's not, I'm sorry, um, uh, uh, Christian Bale, although I think he's really good looking, and he is, June Law is, is like prettier. Like June yeah. Law is more universally, Sloth. I think, good looking. Yeah. Well, Christian Bale still has a little bit of, um, uh, I don't want to say of nerdiness to him but there's a charm about him and you know it's funny cuz there is a scene where he met that girl in the club and remember they were talking in the parking lot and she says you know there's a charm about or she said oh, something right, like the there's, model, a, there's right an honesty about you. I forget how, what she the, how she used to describe him but that's exactly it there's a
2: right there's, there's just, like
0: an endearing quality about him
2: well not, yeah and, and he and in the that I keep on going back to that Charlie Rose interview but he um in in talking about his character he said obviously cuz Charlie Rose asked him the question, what do you like about Patrick Bateman? And, mm-hmm. he's, and he, and in his, his Welsh accent, said, there's not really anything to like. I mean, he was very honest. He said, this guy has very few or any redeeming qualities, but he's such an interesting character that he's the kind of person that you wouldn't mind being at the next table from or at the same table just to hear what he's saying because yeah. he says so many interesting things and at times outlandish things that he is uh, he, he's, he, he's got that, that sharp wit whether it's whether it's truly rooted in, in actual violent violent tendencies or not, like this is a very interesting character and I, that's how I feel about his performance and the character coming together in a perfect way is that. You, you just can't take your eyes off him and can't wait to see what happens next. Like You can't see what's going to happen next with Patrick Bateman as he falls further and further away from reality and, and more towards violence.
0: The, uh, uh, Jackie Kennedy, Onassis' sister, uh, Lee Radziwell, which you guys might know of, one time in an interview somebody asked her, they were kind of doing like this or this type thing, they said, you know, would you rather be at a dinner party with a, with a snob or somebody who's boring? And she said with a snob. And the, the person interviewing seemed like that was a weird answer. They said, well, why? And she goes, because it, they'd be interesting. They'd have funny things to say. I could probably find something humorous. And they'd be entertaining, you know, mm-hmm. versus someone who's just flat out boring. And I, and, and I agree with her on that. And I think you, you did a great job kind of saying, or, or Christian Bale said kind of the same thing. Because, again, yeah, Patrick Bateman is someone who you may not be friends with. But you definitely would just love to listen to him talk like because he's so outlandish. You wouldn't know what's going to come from his mouth. Right. You know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind
0: of like Macho Man.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It uh, always goes
2: back to Macho it Man. It does. To Macho Everything man. really does
0: on in our world.
2: He's our, the he's the our seven glim- degrees for... of, of Macho Man Savage. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: We would we would make this the Macho Man or Andy Savage movie podcast.
0: Yeah, if we could. I would. Well, don't uh, you agree yeah. though? I mean, I don't know if Macho Man is someone I would ever want to like date, you know, or be really have an intimate relationship with, but. I mean, I just love watching the guy talk.
3: Oh yeah, he's he's, 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 he's charisma, yeah, that that right.
2: kind of charisma, that kind like, of magnetism. Yeah. where you, you, you do. You want it, You want to see what's going to happen next? You can't. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of the definition of of stardom and and being interesting <laughs> on cameras that people. Are eager and anxious to see what happens next and what you do or say next. So yeah,
1: I think though that we can agree that Patrick Bateman really wants to be the million dollar man to DiBiase, though that's his litmus test as pro wrestlers. He <laughs> sees all that send, money send I the see, WrestleMania. I think
0: he'd rather be Mr. Perfect.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. All oh, right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe ravishing call. Rick Rude. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> any of those 80s yeah. heel characters. He,
0: Patrick Bateman's an introvert. Even though, oh. even though you know, someone like Ravishing Rick Rude, I think, is too far fetched for him. He he would be like that in the bedroom, mm-hmm. but in public, he was pretty introverted. Like he he was like, you know, like Mister Perfect, kind of sat on the back and just watched everything but was perfect.
1: Yeah, but imagine having dinner with Ravishing Rick Rude next to you. If you thought Patrick Bateman was interesting, wait till you hear Rick Rude go on. <laughs> 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 there's a difference
0: <laughs> between interesting and obnoxious.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Rick Rude is pretty obnoxious. <laughs> Patrick Bateman is interesting. Right. He might be obnoxious, but but you're not going to hear him from across the restaurant. Yeah.
1: You're only Right,
0: gonna hear he he's like said. He's, exactly. he's pretty soft spoken.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, except when he has those little like kind of Outbursts, yeah. you know, like, yeah, yeah like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, and like the, like, when, um, I forget which scene it was or which character somebody touches his suit, don't touch the suit, yeah. and then even in, the, said, in the bed with the two, pro- pro- sufficient.
0: yeah, sufficient. Yes.
2: and in the, in the, in the be- when they're asleep in the bed, he's sleeping between the two prostitutes after their susudio yeah. foray, and, um, <laughs> and what, and one of them, Christy, I think yeah. it is, brings her hand down and kind of hits him on the arm, and he's like, don't touch the watch, you know. Yes. In the middle of, middle of night, sleeping, and he's wearing his watch, and gets offended by her touching his watch. Yes. Act obviously, inadvertently. So, yeah. so uh, to sum it up, guys, like, uh, how do you, I think we all know how we feel
1: about the movie in general? But just you know, maybe let us know overall how does it stack up for you yeah. since you've seen it many times.
2: Yeah, I, I, it, it certainly rates as one of my all time favorites, and, um, and and specifically i'll always have an attachment to this movie because of my discovery certainly he was already an up-and-coming star but my discovery and awareness of christian bale because um i just think it's a landmark performance that he delivers in this movie and it was just a sign of the things that were to come when i think of um, the roles that he has played since the Machinist, when he he plays this you know man haunted by a horrible past incident who loses all that weight, um, and it's not just the losing the weight. I mean he he I say this about great actors, they disappear into their roles and you forget that it's Christian Bale. Like and I feel that way about the Machinist, about Rescue Dawn when he played a, a down Vietnam pilot. Um... Even 310 to Yuma, like I, I love that role. I love him and Russell Crowe together in the remake of the, of the older Western 310 to Yuma. He is he plays such a great, um, you know, damaged, broken man who's trying to do the right thing for his, um, for his son and for his family and um, and and just in American Hustle. I mean, the, the list goes on, but it all to me stems back to. Um, to To this movie, to American Psycho, and I just think he was brilliant, um, and and that it's just uh, it's it's one of those movies that obviously we've talked about it for going on an hour and a half, maybe longer. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's such a movie that you can talk about over and over and over again, and talk about things that you haven't talked about before. There are mm-hmm. so many aspects of the film that um, that. You can spend hours talking about it, and, and I know that we could probably, we we won't, but we probably could do a part two of the American Psycho podcast on Cinema Wheeler Tay because there's so much to talk about, including the, the the thing which we really haven't gotten to, which is kind of the big elephant in the room is whether we truly yeah. believe he yeah. killed all these people in this movie. Yeah, um,
0: I think it was a daydream. I think it was a daydream. Myself.
2: <laughs> See, and I and I and I remember the first time I watched it, and the first time I watched it was in 2001, not long after 9/11. I was I was living in Bismarck, North Dakota, and a friend had gotten it from the store and and rented it on DVD, and we watched it. And it was one of those movies where my very first trip to New York City was 1987, and to me, this movie really captures the ethos. Now, I wasn't hanging out with high uh Wall Street bankers, but just the um, all the all the guys that you would see walking around. Because we that first trip we did, or in August of 1987, we toured the New York Stock Exchange, my mom and me, and walked around Wall Street, not far from where he stabs Al, the homeless man. And it's just like you saw all these power guys, these power yuppies in their suits, and the, the grit and grime of New York City back then. Times Square, they don't really feature that in this movie, but was so kind of seedy back then and i just feel like and then then you combine the music and the clothing and the hairstyles and the walkman and the clunky cellular phone it really does kind of capture the 1980s ethos that i that really brings back a lot of fond memories even though we're dealing with very difficult topics of you know self obsession and materialism and and greed and um I walked out of the movie oh and, and then the twin towers I always love seeing the twin towers I remember when Zoolander came out there was this it came out shortly after 9/11 there was talk that they may try to airbrush out or whatever the equivalent is for film take away the twin towers cuz it's too sensitive and emotional for people to see the twin towers in a movie and I I love seeing the twin towers when I watch movies and there's a scene late in the movie of of American Psycho, a couple of times when you see the Twin Towers. And it, I mean, that was a huge part of the skyline in the 80s. In the 80s. So I, I think it's so relevant to have that there. And it also brings back the nostalgia of pre-9-11. But to get to the point of whether he did or did not commit these murders, that's again, something we could probably spend an hour talking about. When I first saw it, I honestly felt, that the combination of his attorney telling him that uh, Paul Allen was in London and I had dinner with him twice in the past 10 days, the the planner in his desk that his secretary finds with all the kind of outlandish, horrific, sexually violent drawings that are in that planner, um, and then just the absurdity of uh, the closing scenes um, with him trying to stuff a cat into the ATM machine feed me a stray cat the ATM reads and then getting into this shootout with the cops and he blows up a car with the handgun it's all so surreal at that point and so absurd that I had concluded the first time I watched it that it was all in his imagination that these were the delusions of a man who had lost touch with reality and the fact that, you know, they were never able to, the detective was never, never able to charge him. Now, I've never read the book, but in watching the, um, the interview with Mary Heron, uh Brett Easton Ellis, and Christian Bale, she said that, that was, she, she cites that as, as her own failure. The book apparently ends with some of the same ambiguity, but she says that her the way that she left the movie end with ambiguity was a mistake because in her mind, which is, has affected how I now kind of reevaluate and revise my views of the film, is that he did in fact commit these crimes, or at least most of them, maybe not Paul she, Allen. maybe not yeah. Paul Allen, but the ones that are less traceable, the the two prostitutes, the the homeless people. Even even the cops at the very end very likely may have happened and the, the kind of stylized way that they're presented on film and those closing moments of him trying to stuff a cat into the ATM and then shooting the woman who catches him doing it and then having the shootout with the cops and the helicopter chasing him are are all kind of in his imagination. Like he he's actually killing people, but... the the outlandish kind of theatrical way that they're being these crimes are being committed are him rising him raising himself up to this level of grandiosity that he, he truly has lost all touch of reality and gone from having violent psychopathic tendencies to truly being a violent psychopathic killer so so yeah so i i that obviously is the is the 1 million dollar question and another reason that this this film is so riveting and such a talker is that there there really is no one answer it's how yeah. you read the film in the end um it sounds like in listening to the filmmakers and Christian Bale that the intention was that he actually is committing at least some of these crimes but it does leave open the possibility of this all being all part of his crazy psychotic imagination
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. and the one thing i wanted to point out too is and and i agree um with um everything that uh Paul briefly stated. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Next time, I'm going gonna, gonna to do my own American Psycho podcast. and um, I'm just going to set up in my, my closet oh, my at home. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love you, Paul.
1: Um,
0: no, I, I do, absolutely. Um, and, you know, in, in, in listening to, to what you were saying, it got me thinking. Are there any scenes in the movie where we do see New York City in in sunlight? Or is it always shown at night? In the dark when it would be dark and seedy and corrupt and greedy and other words that rhyme with those
2: <laughs> well the, the the other point the the only the in hindsight the only uh, the, i know that there are a couple of day of light scenes but the one that comes to mind specifically which again kind of lends or defends the argument that this was part of his imagination was the night after he makes that confessional hysterical voicemail message for his attorney the next morning they they do show like like an old apartment building that's probably really nice inside that is Paul Allen's apartment and that's when he he shows up and and realizes that all of those supposed body parts that he had been storing there and the hanging yeah. body that the the prostitutes the the one prostitute discovered before she ran down the stairs and was hit by his uh falling uh chainsaw is now completely gone like the the realtor doesn't have any knowledge of a Paul Allen or at least says that the apartment is completely clean and painted over and ready for new tenants mm-hmm. um, one interpretation could be that at some point uh, Patrick Bateman covered his tracks but the way I read it he's shocked that it's so clean and ready to go yeah that 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 it raises questions about whether he actually did commit that kill. crime he had killed and so that's that's why I say that's that's another reason that I say that the, the the fact that the attorney had dinner with Paul Allen twice in London and that apartment tells me that he didn't kill Paul Allen but that he may have in fact committed a lot of the other yeah. Less important murders, you know the people that are more expendable, the are homeless you man. That a, pro-
0: that a prostitute is more expendable than police. I'm
2: not saying that. I'm saying Patrick Bateman saw them as expendable. <laughs> yeah, the, the expendables—a whole new take on that word. Just, <laughs> oh not God. to get political, or I could Stallone, say the the, 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 the deplorables. No, it's like, um, no, I, I, that, that in terms of like empathizing with with the victims. Um, or imagined victims. The worst is the homeless man. That guy, that that really does kind of make me sick to my stomach when he is, yeah, yeah when he when he stabs him and stomps on his dog. You know, that's that,
0: so bad. Yeah, it's that terrible. is that is
2: because that truly yeah. is senseless, random act of violence. And this guy is obviously down on his luck, and you know, not get not hurting anyone, sitting there. And um, yeah, that one is. Uh, that one is kind of gut-wrenching. The other, the other moments of violence have a tendency to um, well, light, lighten it with humor. Yeah. Right, right.
0: Yeah, yeah but, but, but to make it, uh, just to wrap it up, I, I really enjoy this movie. I'm, I'm so glad that, that it is the way that it is. You know, I, I think if it had a more concrete ending, it would take some of the magic and charm away f- for me. I I really like the ambiguity. Um, I like the mystery in it and and being able to come up with what I think might have happened. You know, it's like those old choose-your-own-adventure books. There's a fun to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But Patrick Bateman, the character as a whole, even though he's obviously incredibly flawed and incredibly sick and twisted, I love him. I think it's one of the greatest characters um, to me in in recent cinema. You know, I I really Mm -hmm. think he's a fun... Well, I don't know if I want to say fun, but just an interesting character, um, and he always brings me a lot of joy, as weird as that sounds, and mm-hmm. think of what you will about me now, but, but um, I think the movie's just really great, I, I really, really do. I like the, the marriage of humor and horror, and the psychological aspects of it, um, and uh, I think Christian Bale was phenomenal. In the role, I mean, I can't imagine anybody else doing it, and I think the direction and the style of the film, as Paul had mentioned, was just really top notch. You know, I'm a big detail person, so I appreciate all the little nuances from from the costumes to the way that the apartments are decorated. You know, it all ties back to what was going on in New York City in 1987, Um, and yeah, I just for all the reasons that i've already said many of which that paula said and that we've already talked about i think it's a really great film and i'm glad that we have it and uh, i have to go return some (laughs) videotapes
3: no i agree with their sentiments as well um i think this is a very easily easy to watch movie like it comes on you can just easily just watch it because there's so many scenes that just kind of you can pop... Even if you come in, it's on TV, and you come in, like, in the middle of it, you can just start watching it, you know, because the scenes themselves are so good. And I think the humor helps as well, you know. And um, they, It almost overshadows the end for me. Like, that's why it took so long for us to talk about the end, even though it's got this ambiguous end. To a lot of movies that would have an ambiguous end, that would be the thing that everybody would talk about. But this movie's got so much other right, stuff that's, right. like, even mm-hmm. more... You know, the fact that he kills people in it is, I won't say secondary, but it's almost like there's all these things that have nothing to do with him murdering anybody. It's just him interacting with these other yuppies. That's so fascinating to watch. So, yeah, that's it for, I don't know where it ranks as far as one of my favorite movies, but, you know, it's definitely a movie. If it's on TV, I definitely get sucked into watching it.
1: Yeah, I I think I love this movie more and more the more I think about it. Number one, I have a great deal of nostalgia for the 80s, and this movie is definitely steeped in that. Just just for the aesthetics of that, I I love it. I think it's hilarious. Um, So it's a really sharp satire, and I love sharp black comedy satire. It's a a good um, genre. I mean, it's always been a genre I'm attracted to. Um, I mean, I love Stanley Kubrick, for example, and that kind of fits into that, that character. That thing. Um, I think uh, Bale's performance in this movie is one of the best of the last two decades. I think it's right up there as one of the great all time performances. Um, Sabrina agrees with me and she's just taking. (laughs) I think she's having a hairball right now, or something to that effect. But, uh, I mean, I love this movie. I, 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 I agree with you guys on a lot of the points it makes, and it's something I discover something new each time I see it. You know, it, it, and like I said, Bale, I think, is like, it, it is Bale. I mean, this mm-hmm. movie is Christian Bale's performance. It, it is centered around that character. I think Patrick Bateman is one of the great film characters of the last two decades. Mm-hmm. And I think we need more of this kind of satire yeah. out there. We don't get enough of this black comedy satire yeah. these days. And it's the time where we could probably use some of that. Um, I always like to end the podcast by saying the best place to watch a film outside of the theater is on Blu ray. And American Psycho was released on Blu-ray on the early, like, at the early stages of Blu-ray, actually, in 2007. It's a good Blu-ray. It still holds up and still looks great after all this time. Um, so check it out if you can. It looks pristine. It's actually the uncut version, so it doesn't edit anything out. It's, 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 it's a full, pure version of the film, so, which is how I watched it before the podcast myself. Uh... I want to thank Paul for joining us, yeah, Thank you for having me. It was me. great to have you. Yeah, it was um, a
2: joy, as always. Yeah.
1: Uh, do you have anything coming up? I know you perform frequently with Hashtag, and, and you have a new venture through Hashtag these days.
2: Yes, we are uh, Hashtag Comedy. Uh, every Wednesday night is our traditional Hashtag Comedy improv show, and recently we have begun um, a long form Saturday night, uh, long form improv comedy is a little bit different in that it's it's more of the uh, slow burn. You're you're doing kind of a play that's extended out over multiple scenes, whereas a lot of times short form improv comedy is you know a five minute scene, boom, beginning, finish, and end. So long form Saturday night is something exciting that we're doing one Saturday night every month at uh, Shadowbox Live's Backstage Bistro, but our but our big meal ticket is still the Wednesday night show. We're there every Wednesday night. Um, we have TBD, which is a full, fully improvised musical, of, of which I'm normally uh, an audience member, not a participant. I'm not the musically inclined of our, uh, of our fun group, Hashtag Comedy. But you can find out all of this information by searching for us, uh, Hashtag Comedy Columbus, on Facebook. We're on Twitter, Instagram. And our website is HashtagComedy.com and of course um, yeah the Wednesday night show is the big one and of course we're not I, I don't want to date this but this is kind of evergreen no pun intended but when it comes time for December when that rolls around each year we do our Paul Stelzer
3: <laughs> hashtag
2: comedy Christmas, Christmas Spectacular ganza, or to be politically correct Holiday Spectacular ganza. <laughs> and the Wheeler brothers are regulars on the uh, Spectacular Ganza. And so um, that's that's going to be a sure thing come December, so look forward to that. Whether you're listening to this in 2017 or 2018, <laughs> you can count on the Wheeler Brothers yeah. being a part of that big show. So thank you again, Tony, Scott, and Sean. I always love talking about any topic with you, but especially enjoyed discussing American Psycho with you today. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. I just
0: also wanted to add, too, that um, speaking of hashtag comedy, I will be performing in their Girl Prov uh, show, which is a... Quarterly show that they do where it's just all women doing improv and it's going to be awesome and that's going to be on Wednesday night September twentieth. Uh, show starts at eight. Five dollars. It's going to be at the Backstage Bistro. Paul will be there in support, but he won't be on stage. We just
2: but we just uh, introduce the scenes and look pretty. Yes. That's all the men do. It's all about the ladies and <laughs> I am I am very very excited that uh, Tony will be a part of this this round of girl improv because she's phenomenal. So, yeah, you definitely want to come out and, yeah. and see Tony and all the other lovely ladies of Girl Prov 9.
0: I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> Many of our guests, uh, Sarah Booker, Sarah Storer. I'm trying to think who else we may have that, uh, that we've had on that might be in the show this time. Emily Turner. Uh, just some phenomenal women. So it's, I'm very excited to be a part of it um, and looking forward to it. So if you guys want to come out and check it out, please do. And I, am, I like to say that I'm Paul's unspoken trophy wife.
2: <laughs>
1: in, his,
0: in his holiday extravaganza that's
2: right <laughs> chick valentine I'm um, chick
0: valentine's unspoken trophy
2: wife
0: in my head anyway um, but we really enjoyed having you on as always Paul we gotta get you back on
2: yes oh, yeah. Any uh, time. I love, love talking movies with all of you and um, this is always a, a great joy to come, come spend time with you and talk about our, our passion for movies so yeah mm-hmm. thank you again and I just wanted to add myself, like, uh, you know,
1: Scott and I are going to be performing off and on either as the Wheeler Brothers, or Scott performs with the trip called Pocket Lint occasionally.
3: Yes, that's the second uh, Friday of each month at Cafe Kerouac. And then the Wheeler Brothers are going to be performing next in October at Improv Wars. Improv which is Wars. <laughs> that's by, and Paul mistake. Stelzer is the announcer. Next. One of the announcers. It's, <laughs> it's, still, it's still
2: Jeff Gage as master of ceremonies. I'm kind of the... Uh, halftime reporter the yeah like kind of the sideline reporter with uh yeah. the, the backstory to what's going on at <laughs> improv wars so yeah improv wars is is another hashtag comedy production that uh we always le- love seeing pocket lint uh, the wheeler brothers and other very very talented improv comedy groups here in columbus compete for your laughs it's a text to vote yeah. system and that happens on thursday nights it's not every thursday night so you have to kind of check the listings You can do that on our Facebook page or com To kind of find out the next one Well there's one in September and then the finals I think are October 21st I think is the final date Or October 19th, whatever's a Thursday that month Mm
1: -hmm. And I just want to uh, Plug someone uh, outside of our Podcast actually who's been a really good Friend recently, her name's Amanda Iman She was our uh, guest on the Fantasia podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She has a terrific movie-themed podcast here in Columbus as well called Amanda's Picture Show A Go-Go. Scott, Tony, and I have all appeared on that uh, multiple times, actually. And it's a terrific podcast. Like, if you're looking for your Cinema Wheeler tape fix and we don't have anything published that week, I highly recommend checking that out because she gets a lot of great guests. She's usually covering current releases or the occasional classic. And many of the guests that appeared on our podcast such as Adam Novak, Stephen Woosley, and Colleen Dunn, for example, have all appeared on her podcast as well. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to give that shout-out. It's it, it's a podcast I genuinely love and listen to even without her support. So mm-hmm. yeah. I just want to put that out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's, yeah. yeah and if you like us, gang, uh, feel free to, to rate us on iTunes, connect with us on Facebook. I will be putting the uh, Patrick Bateman playlist up there for for all of y'all so let me know if you like it if I maybe if I left a song out <laughs> let me know um, but as always thanks so much for listening
1: yeah thank you very much and uh, we'll see you next
2: time see Bye. I'm trying to listen to the new Robert Palmer tape but Evelyn, my supposed fiance keeps buzzing in my ear
0: any leave We'll get any leave Leibovitz. And we'll have to get someone to videotape. Patrick, we should do it.
2: Do what?
0: Get married. Have a wedding.
2: No, I can't take the time off work.
0: Your father practically owns the company. You can do anything you like, silly.
2: I don't want to talk about it.
0: I hate that job anyway. see why you just don't quit.
2: Because I want to fit in. Did you know that Whitney Houston's debut LP, called simply Whitney Houston, had four number one singles on it? Did you know that, Chrissy?